That symbol there is a Celtic symbol showing wheels within a wheel. And it is a good emblem for this talk, so be warned. <laughs> so I want to talk about cultural learning and how we humans come to be capable of cultural learning. So we should probably start by thinking about what's meant by cultural learning. Um, it's a term which has been used increasingly in the last 10 years or so to refer to a group of broadly defined psychological processes, such as social learning, imitation, language, teaching, and recently, social motivation. And they're called collectively cultural learning because by those interested in cultural evolution at Peter's meso level, um, they are seen as enabling cumulative cultural evolution. That is the non-genetic inheritance of information such that the behavior of individuals and of groups can achieve a progressively greater fit with the physical and the social environment through some kind of Darwinian process. Now, to use Richardson and Boyd's rather nice phrase, many people believe that cultural learning is what makes us humans so odd, that it's what makes us so extremely and gloriously different from other animals with our built environment, our science and technology, arts and political and economic systems. Extremely different even from our closest living relatives, chimpanzees, in the way in which we live. But surprisingly, even those who are most enthusiastic about the power of cultural evolution tend to assume that the capacities for cultural learning are genetic adaptations. So, for example, here we have um, Tomasello and Herman saying what makes most clearly distinguishes human cognition from that of other primates is their adaptations for functioning in cultural groups. Human children come into the world ready to collaborate, as it were, with forebears in their culture by adopting their artifacts, symbols, skills and practices via imitation and instructed learning. And similarly, in their recent book, Richardson and Boyd, we agree with our colleagues that culture is shaped by psychological predispositions which are products of natural selection. So even people very much impressed by the power of cultural evolution reach for the Swiss Army knife of the Santa Barbara School of Evolutionary Psychology when they're trying to explain the human capacity to engage in cultural learning. It is the Santa Barbara School that Richardson and Boyd are referring to by their colleagues in this quote. Now, I want to question that assumption. Um, the, the basic model which is currently in place is that genetic evolution yields the capacities for cultural learning, which then make possible cultural evolution. But I want to suggest instead that the contribution of genetic evolution to the capacity for cultural learning is a good deal less than is generally assumed, and that cultural learning is both a product of cultural evolution as well as a producer 
of cultural evolution. So I'm saying that it's not just the grist, but also the mills that are culturally inherited, and I'll try moving to avoid the microphone interference, that it's a familiar idea that facts and techniques are culturally inherited. But I'm going to suggest that it's also the psychological processes that make it possible for us to inherit that grist, which are themselves also culturally inherited. Now, to try and persuade you that there's some merit in that idea, I want to look at three examples. Uh, reading, social learning, and imitation. I wonder if there's any spot I can stand in and see the screen. Um, okay, let's start with reading. Now, I'll admit that the reading example I'm putting up first because it's to soften you up. Because everyone would agree that cultural learning is a hugely, sorry, that, that reading is a hugely powerful kind of cultural learning. That we can acquire all kinds of wisdom produced by our ancestors through reading books. And almost nobody would deny that the capacity to read this form of cultural learning is itself culturally inherited. The history of written language is not so long that it is plausible that there are genetic adaptations that make it possible for us to read. We teach, we train children to read. But what may be less widely known is how radical are the changes which are wrought on the cognitive system by learning to read. So this is Coldheart's dual root cascade model of the cognitive system that enables us to read. It has three roots, uh, a root which goes from the analysis of simple letters to a mental dictionary of printed word forms to a semantic system which stores the meanings of words, then to a phonological output lexicon which contains sound information about words, and then to a phoneme system which actually produces speech. And the second route bypasses the semantic system but uses the orthographic input lexicon and the phonological output lexicon, and a third route goes straight from the analysis of letter forms through a grapheme-phoneme correspondence route to the speech production system. Now, the important things to notice about this are that this whole system, which should have a circle around it like that, this whole system, this whole module is put in place by learning to read. And even the components which are in place before the child learns to read are reconfigured by learning to read. And that this process not only changes the way in which we analyze written words, it also changes the way in which we analyze speech, the sound of language. Now, the best evidence for these radical changes to the cognitive system comes from behavioral experiments. But we all like colored pictures of the brain. And a dramatic way of illustrating these changes is with reference to a study recently completed by Stan DeHaan's group, which put 
literate adults and illiterate adults otherwise well-matched for general intelligence and worldly achievements into the fMRI scanner and showed them both written sentences and spoken words. And this first picture just gives a general impression of how widespread are the changes which are produced by learning to read. So in all of these areas of the left hemisphere, activation was modulated by whether people were or were not literate. On the left here, you see that there is modulation by literacy of activity in occipital regions, indicating that fairly low-level visual processes have been changed by learning to read. And here in an occipitotemporal region, there's modulation of activity by literacy. This area is known as the visual word form area precisely because it is so reliably activated by the sight of words in literate people. Now, this kind of localization of function could very easily be mistaken for indicating, if we didn't know about the history of literacy, that the capacity to read was an innate module. And then again, turning to what happened when people were listening to spoken words, there was modulation by literacy of activity in the planum temporale, and again in this visual word form area, while listening to words, indicating that our representations of spoken words are restructured by learning to read. After we've learned to read, we analyze the flow of speech into different smaller segments, which improves speech recognition. And also, we see as well as hear words, even when the printed words are not presented to us. So, reading is clearly an acquired module. Learning to read is a process that reconstructs the cognitive system. It gives us a new module. It, this example shows, I think, with very little doubt, that cultural learning, a form of cultural learning, can be culturally inherited. And so the question is really, how far does that go? To what extent are other forms of cultural learning culturally inherited? So in pursuit of that question, let's turn to social learning. Now, many people have claimed that social learning is an important form of cultural learning, but it's rather different from reading in a number of ways. First of all, it's a rather um, broad and amorphous category, a bit of a rag bag of psychological processes go under the name of social learning. But broadly speaking, an individual is said to have socially learned if they learned something about the world by observation of the behavior of another agent. And if that behavior of the other agent, the model or the demonstrator, as they're sometimes called, if that, their behavior was not tailored to teach the observer something. So if the model or expert's behavior is either intended to convey information, or if um, evolution by natural selection has adapted the teacher's behavior, then it's not called social learning. It's called teaching or signaling or communication. Another major contrast with reading is that 
Social learning is present in a wide range of non-human animals. So it's clear that social learning is not sufficient for cumulative cultural evolution, or a whole bunch of other animals would have human-like culture. But nonetheless, it's, as Boyd and Richardson argue, quite possible that social learning is very important for cultural evolution in humans, even if it's far from sufficient. And as we'll see, it's very handy that other animals are capable of social learning when it comes to asking about the origins of the capacity for social learning. And finally, whereas virtually nobody would argue that reading is based on a genetically evolved innate module, a common view is that social learning is due to a number of genetic adaptations. Now, I've argued, in contrast with that view in this paper and elsewhere, that social learning is not based on any new modules at all, either genetically evolved or culturally evolved <coughs> new processes. So I've argued that the learning mechanisms, the psychological mechanisms that process information for long-term storage and durable change in behavior, the, those learning mechanisms involved in social learning are exactly the same learning mechanisms involved when we learn not by observing others, but by direct interactions with the inanimate world, when we engage in individual or asocial learning, as it's sometimes called, or trial and error learning, that they are the same learning mechanisms. However, I do think that in many cases of social learning, the input mechanisms which are involved have been specialized, specially tuned to receive social information. And by input mechanisms, I mean perceptual, attentional, and motivational processes that feed information to the core learning mechanisms. So what I'm suggesting is that, as it were, the guts of learning are the same when you're learning by observation of another or by direct interaction with the world, but that the analog of ingestive processes, these input mechanisms, are sometimes specialized, specially tuned to information from others, and that that is commonly, that bias is commonly induced developmentally, not by gene-based evolutionary change, but in the course of development. So I want to tell you briefly why I think the learning mechanisms are the same, and then briefly why I think that developmental biasing of social inputs is very common. So social learning mediated by the same general mechanisms of associative learning, I would argue, as learning by direct interaction with the environment. Here's five swift reasons to think so. The first reason, um, studies of both birds and primates have shown that the capacity for social learning and for asocial or individual learning are positively correlated. Animals that are good at one of them tend to be good at the other one. Even solitary animals, such as the common octopus or the glorious red-footed tortoise, are capable of social learning in the laboratory. Types of social learning map on to types of asocial learning. It's like the anatomy of the two is isomorphic. So 
Specialists in the study of social learning, for example, distinguish something called stimulus enhancement, one type of social learning, from another type of social learning, observational conditioning. That corresponds to the distinction used by those who study associative learning between single stimulus learning, for example, sensitization and habituation, and stimulus-stimulus learning, for example, Pavlovian conditioning. And each type of social learning is found in a very diverse range of species. So, for example, we humans can learn fear of a stimulus. In this example, the stimulus is a blue square on a computer screen. We can learn fear of that stimulus by observing somebody else receiving an electric shock in the presence of the blue square. That's observational conditioning. Similarly, a very different animal, a damselfly larva, learns fear of pike by encountering chemical cues from pike in association with, um, with injured damselfly larvae. So we have this same type of social learning in rather different species. And finally, each of the types of social learning that have been distinguished bears what I'm calling the footprint of associative learning. So in the laboratory, these types of social learning show effects which are characteristic of associative learning, or for example, Pavlovian conditioning, effects like blocking and overshadowing. So those are the reasons to believe that there are no new modules genetic or cultural, involved in social learning. But what about this biasing of input mechanisms towards social sources of information? I want to show you just two examples of the evidence which suggest that this can happen, and regularly does happen, developmentally in the course of an individual's lifetime. This first example shows that this biasing towards social information can happen very flexibly and on a short time scale. And it comes from Tim Berens and Matthew Rushworth and their colleagues. And in this experiment, in each trial, the subjects were asked to choose between two options, a blue and a green option. And the, each option would have a number printed on it which gave some kind of indication of how many points the subject was likely to get if they, choosed, if they chose that option. Okay. Not an entirely reliable indicator, and over the course of the experiment, the reliability of those numbers in terms of their indications of value would vary. Then, next thing that happened in the trial was that the subject got advice from a confederate this was the social information telling them whether he thought that they should choose the blue or the green. Then they went on and made their choice, and then they got feedback telling them how many points they would get for that choice. Now, when people were put in the fMRI scanner during, uh, while they were performing this task, and uh, the researchers modeled their bold responses in two areas of the brain, the ventral striatum, and the prefrontal cortex, it was found that over trials, 
people were weighting the two sources of information, the numbers and the advice from the Confederate, in a broadly rational way, when, for example, the social information from the Confederate had recently been trustworthy, then they were relying more on that information than when it had not been trustworthy. And interestingly, they were making that weighting, they were determining how much they should use the numbers versus the advice using an associative learning mechanism, a mechanism dependent on prediction error. So that provides an example of short timescale, flexible alteration of how much I rely on social information, on attention to social information, using, as it happens, an associative learning mechanism. Now, the other example I want to show you is one in which the biasing of information is to a very specific social source, and it's clearly a durable lifetime effect. In this study by Jack and colleagues, they used eye movement tracking technology to see where people were looking when they were looking at facial expressions of emotion. And they compared Western Caucasian people with East Asian people. And across all face ethnicities and all different facial expressions of emotion, they found a different eye tracking pattern in the two ethnic groups. The red shows you the area of maximum concentration of eye movements. And as you can see, the Western Caucasian sample are dividing their attention much more equally between the eyes and the mouth of the face than is the East Asian sample. They are looking predominantly at the eyes and much less at the mouth. And when they then looked at these two groups observing different facial expressions of emotion, surprise, fear, disgust, and anger, and trying to identify what was the emotion they were looking at, they found that the East Asian sample were less able to identify fear and disgust, two facial expressions of emotion which greatly involved the mouth, they were less able to do that than the Western Caucasian sample. Now, as far as I know, nobody's pursued this and looked at the impact of this social attention to a specific part of the social stimulus in this case, to the mouth versus the eyes, looked at the impact of that on observational conditioning, a form of social learning. But my prediction would be that it would have profound effects. Observational conditioning is a very important way of learning the value of different objects in our environment. So with this different pattern of eye movements, it's very likely that East Asian people are going to be less able to learn socially about which objects are frightening and disgusting by looking at the facial expressions of others. So, we've done reading and we've done social learning. Now I want to focus on imitation, and I'm going to dwell a little bit more on imitation because I think it's an especially interesting case not least because many people claim that it is the most important kind of social learning for cultural learning, 
for um, enabling the cumulative cultural evolution. Now, imitation, there's lots of different definitions of imitation floating around, but most commonly, it's used to refer to the learning of new behavioral topography by observing the behavior of somebody else. And what's new behavioral topography? It's a new way of moving the parts of your body relative to one another, a way in which you have not done that before. Um, so a paradigmatic example might be learning new whole body movements involved in dance sequences. In those dance sequences, the distinctive aspect of each component of the action is how the parts of the body are configured relative to one another rather than their effects on objects. Now, many people who believe that imitation is an important form of cultural learning believe that it's important for the cultural inheritance of technological skills, such as stone tool making. Myself, I tend to think that it's important more in the inheritance of social than of technological skills, in the inheritance of gait and posture and rhythmic movements of the kind involved in dance, which are very important for social bonding within groups and for our identifying membership of a group for distinguishing in-group from out-group members. But however you look at the question, there is a general agreement that imitation is important for cultural inheritance. So let's look first at the cognitive architecture which seems to be supporting imitation and then turn to the question of how we come to have that cognitive architecture. Now, over the last few years, evidence has accumulated that the architecture making imitation possible is something like this, that imitation depends on a great many of these. I'm showing just three of them. And we've called them matching vertical associations, each of these. So each matching vertical association is a sensory representation of an action linked in an excitatory way to a motor representation of the same action. So this might be a visual mental picture of what hand opening looks like. And this is um, a mental representation of what it feels like to open your hand with the power to initiate performance of that action. That's what I mean by a motor representation. Now, the associative sequence learning model of imitation suggests that when we observe a novel action sequence performed by somebody else, we are able to encode that as a sequence of sensory or visual representations. We can learn and remember what that novel sequence looked like. And if we have the vertical associations in place, we can then, as a direct consequence, learn the motor sequence. We can connect up those representations of what it feels like to perform the action, the representations which also have the capacity to initiate the action. 
So if these vertical associations are in place, then we can engage in motor learning, the kind of learning that normally only happens through practice, like through riding a bike, but we can do it without practice, instead just by observing the action performed by somebody else and having the activation of visual representations propagated to motor representations. Now, this model of imitation is very different from its predecessor, which postulated in various different forms, I'm summarizing across models here, something that you might call a universal body movement converter. The idea was that there was a black box, um, very little was said about what went on in this black box, but there was a black box of some kind which could take visual input from any observed body movement and somehow convert it into matching motor output, into performance of a body movement that looks the same from a third-party perspective. But research in recent years using a variety of different paradigms and with adult humans and children and non-human animals has suggested that this associative architecture is a better fit with the evidence. So some of that work comes from studies of uh, the imitation learning of complex sequences of finger movements, some from learning of simpler but rapidly performed sequences of actions on objects, and some of it from studies of automatic or involuntary imitation. But rather than describe that evidence, let me take a shortcut and point out that the evidence of mirror neurons, which you may all have heard of, amounts to evidence that these vertical associations are in place in us and in monkeys. Evidence of mirror neurons indicates that there are relatively low-level connections between visual and motor representations of action. Now, just to remind you, mirror neurons were first discovered by Giacomo Rizzolatti and his group um, in the macaque monkey, and the distinctive characteristic of mirror neurons is that they are single neurons, single units, which will fire, for example, when the monkey reaches out and uses a precision grip to pick up a grape itself, and when it passively observes while a human uses the same grip, the same precision grip, to pick up the grape. But in the most precise matching cases, it would not, for example, fire if the experimenter used a power grip to pick up the grape. And it's very difficult to do single cell recording in humans, but there's now quite a lot of evidence that we humans also have these mirror neurons, at least in the same areas of the brain where they've been found in the macaque monkey and possibly in many other areas, but certainly in ventral premotor cortex and in the inferior parietal lobe. So, I'm suggesting that those vertical associations that I told you about, the sensory visual representations of action linked in an excitatory way to motor representations of the same action are in some cases instantiated in mirror neurons. So as we turn from the question of what's the architecture that makes imitation possible 
to the question of where that architecture comes from, we can tackle the question by asking, well, where do mirror neurons come from? Well, the associative sequence learning model that my group has developed suggests that mirror neurons are learned and that they are learned through experience of a sociocultural kind. So here I'm showing, uh, this is a schematic representation of some cells in the superior temporal sulcus and in the premotor cortex of a newborn baby. And these are um, sensory or visual neurons in the sense that each of them will fire when the infant sees a particular action. So it might be that this one fires when the infant sees holding, this one when the infant sees precision grip, and this one when the infant sees power grip. And these cells are motor in the sense that they fire in this newborn baby only when the baby engages in a specific kind of action. So it might be only when the baby engages in holding or precision grip or when it engages in a power grip. But the important thing to notice is that at this stage, there are no, that the connections between these sensory and motor neurons are nonspecific. They're widely distributed. Or if there are privileged links, they are not matching links. So there's no special connection between the visual neuron that fires when the infant sees a power grip and the motor neuron that fires when the infant performs a power grip. But that's not going to last for very long because the infant gets a number of different sources of experience that will change the situation. The simplest source is self-observation. So here's a baby lying by itself, looking at its own hand as it performs a power grip. Now, as part of the engine of performance of that power grip, this motor neuron has fired. If the baby watches its hand as it performs the action, then that will result in firing of this visual neuron, which is sensitive to the sight of a power grip. So the activation of those two neurons is going to be correlated. And according to associative learning theory, that's a necessary and sufficient condition for the forging of a strong excitatory link between that visual and that motor neuron. And if the infant receives that kind of correlated sensory motor experience across a range of actions, then after some learning, we're going to have these strong connections between sensory and motor representations of corresponding actions. And now, these neurons, which were once merely motor neurons, are also mirror neurons. That is, they will fire not only when the relevant action is performed, but also by virtue of these excitatory links when the individual observes that action. So this is an account of how we learn mirror neurons. These are what we call the mirror neurons, but the thing which is really doing the job is the connection between the sensory and the motor neuron. And the most important thing to notice is that self-observation is the simplest, but certainly not the only source of experience that could give us mirror neurons on this account. 
So in order to get mirror neurons, not only for hand movements, but also for whole body movements and for facial expressions, the kinds of action that look very different when we do them ourselves and when we observe somebody else doing them, then we need other sources of experience. Experience of the kind that we get when we are being trained in certain sporting and dance activities, or when we're being drilled, synchronous action, when we have an opportunity to perform an action and simultaneously to watch others performing the action. When we look in optical mirrors, and probably the most important, when we are imitated by adults. All of these are sources of the correlated sensory motor experience which builds mirror neurons. And even self-observation, although it may be the least obviously social of these sources, is culturally conditioned. For example, in cultures where swaddling of infants is the norm, there is going to be much less opportunity for self-observation of hand movements than in other cultures. Okay, so just a little bit about the, you know, that, so that's the model. What about the evidence? Um, there's some interesting evidence that Liz Ray and I uh, put together in this recent review for the wealth of the stimulus. This is Kim Sterelny's term, the wealth of the stimulus, but we absolutely love it. What this observational evidence shows is that infants have lots of opportunity to get the correlated sensory motor experience that you would need to build mirror neurons, or what I'm calling vertical links. So for example, this study, these studies tend to be quite old. I think this kind of observational work kind of went out of fashion with the universal body converter view of imitation. But this study in 1964 found extraordinarily that two to three month old infants were spending the majority of their waking hours looking at their own hands in motion. And um, this other example by Polby in 1977 looked at mothers and infants interacting when the infants were four to 10 months old. When they were interacting face to face, they found imitation every minute, on average occurring once every minute, and that in 80% of those cases, it was imitation of the infant by the adult. The adult often believed that the frequency with which the infant was imitating her was a lot higher, but closer analysis of the behavior suggested that what we do when we're interacting with a small infant is that we wait until they've started to perform an action repeatedly, and then we insert our own copies in the gaps so that we feel as if they are imitating us. Another interesting feature of this study was that it found evidence of selective reward of imitation. So if by chance a baby did something that resembled what the adult had just done, the adult poured out copious smiles and cooing and praising. Um, the infants were in effect being trained to imitate. Now there is also experimental evidence for the story I'm telling about imitation. I just want to pause before I give you a sample of that experimental evidence um, to reflect. So this account of the origin of our capacity to imitate, the origin of this particular form of cultural learning, this is trial and error learning, finding the right spot for this, okay. Um, 
This story effectively says that mirror neurons, matching vertical associations, the wherewithal to imitate is a byproduct produced by associative learning of a system which is genetically adapted for visual motor control. I mean, these connections between superior temporal sulcus and premotor cortex, for example, aren't there by chance. This system has adapted to enable us to make precise movements in relation to visual stimuli. So it has evolved, you might say, for a technological purpose. The mirror neurons, the imitation, are doing something social, but that social thing is a byproduct. It was not, as it were, favored by gene-based natural selection. That's what the story is saying. Now, some people might say, well, you know, maybe that's okay for the early evolution of the capacity to imitate or the early evolution of, the, uh, of mirror neurons. But surely, if imitating was good for fitness, then there's going to have been some kind of genetic assimilation. For example, things will have evolved which will have made us faster to learn matching vertical associations, links between visual representations of an action and a motor representation of the same action, to enable us to learn that faster than to learn a non-matching association. How am I doing for time, Richard? Just fine. How much longer? <laughs> oh, good. Okay, fine. Uh, Okay, but they might say, look, there's been some kind of genetic assimilation. Now, clearly that is a logical possibility, but I want to show you a couple of experiments that we've done which have looked for and failed to find any evidence of such genetic assimilation. In the first of these experiments, what we did was try to induce in adult humans the development of counter-mirror neurons. That is, neurons, or areas of the brain, that would fire when the individual was observing one action and when they were performing a completely different action. Something which, if there's been genetic assimilation, you might expect to be pretty hard to do. You might expect some buffering against this kind of interference with the mirror neuron system. And in these experiments led by Caroline Katmer, we use something called the Fadiga effect. Um, and the Fadiga effect shows that when we are looking at body movements, even when we're just passively observing body movements, we have activation in precisely those muscles that we would use to perform the action that we're observing. So in the preparation that we used, we showed people index finger abduction movements, very small sideways movements of the index finger, and we showed them little finger abduction movements. And while we were doing that, we used transcranial magnetic stimulation to record motor-evoked potentials, subthreshold twitches, in their index finger muscle and in their little finger muscle. And we took those measurements before and after we gave them some novel sensory motor experience. So the experimental group 
between the two tests were given experience in which every time they saw an index finger movement, they had to perform a little finger movement. And every time they saw a little finger movement, they had to perform an index finger movement. And the control group just got more of the experience that one would get in everyday life if you look at your own hands when they're in motion. And what we found was the Fadiga effect before the training and a reverse Fadiga effect after the training. So if we look at the experimental group here, and here we have their, the motor evoked potentials from their index finger muscle, solid line, and their little finger muscle, uh, broken line, when they were observing index finger movements and when they were observing little finger movements. And before we'd messed about with them, they were showing the usual effect. More activity in the index finger muscle when they were observing index finger movements than when they were observing little finger movements, for example. But after we had given them just an hour and a half of this incompatible training, that effect had disappeared. So now we have less activity in the index finger muscle while observing index finger movements than while observing little finger movements and vice versa for activity in the little finger muscle. Now this Fadiga effect, Fadiga was a member of the original group in Palmer that discovered mirror neurons, is widely understood to be due to the action of the mirror neuron system and therefore this provides evidence that with relatively little training and a durable effect 24 hours after training, we got these effects, you can change the mirror system in the case of these movements from functioning as a mirror system to functioning as a counter mirror system. So we encountered no resistance to changing the system of a kind that one might expect if there had been some sort of genetic assimilation. But you might say, well, okay, that was testing the idea that the, um, the mirror neuron system is somehow adapted for matching, for learning connections between body movements seen and the same body movements performed. Perhaps that's not what has been genetically assimilated. Perhaps instead, given that it's so commonly claimed that the mirror neuron system is for action understanding, um, perhaps what the mirror neuron system does and is protected to do is to learn connections between the site and the performance of body movements. Doesn't matter whether they match or not. It's just supposed to link up body movements seen with body movements performed. And if that was the case, then the mirror neuron system should be resistant to change by experience in which um, arbitrary objects, things like geometric shapes, rather than the site of actions, is being correlated with the performance of actions. So in this last experiment I want to tell you about, we tested whether that was the case. This experiment led by Claire Press and Jeff Bird started with people being trained, well, learning for themselves that they had to perform a different hand movement in response to each of four geometric objects. So, for example, when they saw a green circle, they had to point. When they saw a red square, they had to stick their thumb out, and so on. Okay. 
They spent, I think, an hour and a half in total learning those stimulus-response relationships. And then we put them in the fMRI scanner using what's known as a repetition suppression procedure. Essentially, we showed them rapid sequences of events. This shows just a segment of such a sequence. And in these sequences, observation of the shapes used in training alternated with observation, sorry, with execution of the actions used in training. But some of the transitions in this sequence are trained transitions, and some of them are untrained transitions. So in training, the splayed hand did follow the yellow hexagon, but in training, the splayed hand did not follow the blue triangle. So using this logic of repetition suppression, what we expected was that if, as a consequence of this training, the mirror neuron system had got wired up to visual areas of the brain which process entirely arbitrary objects, then we should get a repetition suppression effect in the form of less activation in the mirror neuron system on trained transitions than on untrained transitions. And indeed, that's what we found. So this is an area of the ventral premotor cortex where mirror neurons have been found both in monkeys and in humans, which showed the repetition suppression effect indicating that mirror neurons in this area had become wired up by this brief period of training to visual areas encoding arbitrary colored shapes. So these two experiments both were designed to test the general associative account of the architecture of the imitation system. Um, the theory that imitation is made possible by associative learning in a certain socio-cultural context and they support those hypotheses, but also, as I say, provide no encouragement for the view that there has been genetic assimilation of the learning that yields mirror neurons and the capacity to imitate. Now, Richard has told me I've only got five minutes, so I'm going to mention only that I have things I could say about what's known as over-imitation and rational imitation, I'd be very happy to talk about them in the discussion period, but I don't have time for them now. So let me just round up. So I've been suggesting that the psychological processes of cultural learning are themselves culturally inherited. That it's not only the grist, but also the mills that are culturally inherited. And I've done that with reference to three examples, reading, social learning, and imitation. In the case of reading, reading is a constructive process. It causes radical change in the cognitive system. It results in a new acquired module. But some people would argue that that new module is built on a genetically evolved foundation, the foundation for spoken language. Now, I have my doubts about that, but it's a sufficiently contentious issue that one certainly can't exclude that possibility. In the case of social learning, I've argued that 
there is no new module or modules that do social learning. There's no new core guts learning mechanisms. But that nonetheless, many examples of social learning are well named because they result from mechanisms, input mechanisms, attentional and motivational mechanisms, which are biased towards social input. But I've also argued that that biasing can occur, and I think occurs a lot, developmentally rather than by genetic means. And finally, the case of imitation, which I think is interesting because, again, there's evidence that learning to imitate is a constructive process, that it puts a whole new system in place, an acquired module. But in the case of imitation, there is neither reason to believe that there is a cultural learning foundation for the learning that produces the capacity to imitate, nor have we found any evidence of subsequent genetic assimilation. So if there's any merit in this idea looking to the future, it's clear that we need lots more experiments, and in particular, cross-cultural experiments on different forms of cultural learning, and experiments in which we manipulate the kind of socio-cultural experience which can build cultural learning mechanisms. I'm also myself planning to look at other types of cultural learning, including theory of mind and norm learning, and to consider whether there is one kind of process which is building cultural learning processes on the basis of sociocultural experience. For example, whether at any useful level of abstraction, the process can be described as one of selection. And finally, if there's any merit in the idea that cultural learning is culturally inherited, of course, we need to examine the implications of this for cultural evolvability. For example, for the fidelity with which grist facts about the world can be culturally inherited. But certainly at first blush, the idea that cultural inheritance, that cultural learning is itself culturally inherited, I think suggests that cultural evolution may be on an even longer genetic leash than even cultural evolutionists have assumed. Thank you.